Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry. This week, we have a special lesson in store. As we contemplate and prepare for the celebration of Passover and Easter, and commemorate the atonement and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will be hearing from our teacher, Brian Reedy. Brian is a former Protestant minister, and he is the author of the book, Crossing the Divide, where he tells his own personal journey to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We know this will be a very special lesson, and we hope you will feel that you want to share it with your friends. Tell your friends that they can find our podcasts on Apple Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and many other sites. This month, as a special gift to our viewers, uh, Cedar Fort is offering a gift of 20% off on any product at cedarfort.com. Just use the code at checkout, podcast20. Thank you. Hello, and happy Easter. This week, we will pause our study of the Old Testament and look at the culmination of everything the Old Testament teaches, that is, the atonement and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in their proclamation of the living Christ declare, quote, the life of Jesus Christ is central to all human history, end quote. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes it so. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he's just another human philosopher who inspired many. But if Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, every word he said was true, the atonement is real, death has been defeated, and the gift of eternal life is available for all. Accounts of the resurrection occur in all four of the New Testament Gospels. Come Follow Me suggests that we use the account in the Gospel of John as the foundation of our study today, and that's what we're going to do. So if you have your scriptures handy, turn with me to John chapter 20. As we look at this chapter, we could summarize it by calling it a series of unexpected events. So let's look at the text here. The first day of the week, here we go. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark under the sepulcher and seeth the the stone taken away from the sepulcher. So the first unexpected thing we have here is the stone had been rolled away. Now, if you remember the account in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27, verses 65 through 66, Pilate had installed a guard, Roman guard, likely two to four Roman soldiers, and the stone had been sealed, likely by a series of ropes being placed over the stone and and literally nailed or driven into the the rock front of the tomb and placing a big wax seal on these ropes where these ropes all came together. To break that seal without permission was punishable by, uh, I think, scourging and even beyond that, depending on if you're Roman uh, citizens or not. So the first unexpected event is that the seal had been broken and the stone had been rolled away. Number two, look at the second verse. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. So the second thing is the tomb was empty. The body was gone. Continue reading. Peter therefore went forth 
and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. I think we have a number three unexpected event. It's a little bit of humanity here in that the other disciple, most scholars think, was likely John, the author of this text. And he's kind of making a little fun of Peter that he outran Peter. Not a significant theological moment by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it shows the humanity of the author here that he wanted to get a little dig in at Peter, that he outran Peter to the tomb. Keep, keep going here, verse 5. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Now, the napkin was a cloth that was wrapped around the head to help protect it. And what is being noticed here is that the grave clothes are lying in one area, but this napkin had been folded at a certain Back to the text. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So that's unexpected, that they knew not the scripture. Now that phrase could also be translated, they didn't understand the scripture. You know, Jesus had predicted his death at least three times, and yet they didn't quite get what was going on. And that makes me feel good. You know, if the disciples that Jesus, that lived with Jesus for three years and heard him speak and heard him preach every day, didn't get it, then it makes me feel good that when I don't get it too, that if they missed it, I can miss it too and it'll be okay. But it still is astonishing though that they didn't understand. They didn't quite understand what had been taking place. And now, right now, in the morning of the resurrection, they're just starting, it's just starting to make sense to them. Back to verse 10. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home, but Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre and see two angels in white sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. So the next unexpected event is that angels appear. And just as unexpected as the angels appearing is Mary isn't, doesn't appear to be disturbed that these angels appeared out of nowhere. Why? I mean, think about it. Most of the times when angels appear, the people get scared to death. Usually the first word out of an angel's mouth is fear not. But they don't say that. Why? Because Mary was weeping uncontrollably. When we hear the word weep, we think of, of our modern day funerals where maybe there's quiet crying or some sniffling and so forth. But if you've ever seen a Middle Eastern funeral, the mourning is very loud. It's, it's wailing. And that's really what the word weep means here. According to uh, one lexicon, the word here translated, it means a loud expression of grief, and it is in the imperfect tense, so the ongoing, this is just, she is wailing and wailing and just, just uh, ongoing continually. She is so distraught by what has happened here that she didn't notice that these two angels appeared out of nowhere, and this is an important 
thing to understand when we when we read the next section of scripture, which we'll turn to now. Look at verse 14. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus and knew him not that it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. So the next unexpected event here is Jesus appeared. And then follow behind that, Mary didn't recognize who Jesus was. Now, a lot of scholars make a big deal out of this. See, you know, it wasn't really Jesus. It was some kind of imposter. If it was really Jesus, she would know who it was. But Mary just missed two angels. She is so distraught. She is overcome with emotion that she doesn't recognize Jesus. And the word that we have here in uh, this section is the same word uh, earlier when it said the disciples knew not the scripture, now they're saying she doesn't know Jesus. That word means to perceive or to understand. She just didn't recognize him. She, she, she wasn't clicking because she was so distraught by what happened. And then verse 16 in this beautiful verse, Jesus saith unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. The next unexpected event we have here is Jesus saying her name. And I think it was said in a tone of voice that was both tender and firm. Because as soon as Jesus said her name, she recognized him immediately. How comforting is it to us to know that Jesus too knows our name. And one day we'll get to hear him say it face to face. And we will probably react the same way Mary reacts. Look at the next verse. Jesus saith unto her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. The next unexpected event we see here is Jesus' admonition to Mary not to touch her. Now, this doesn't really make sense because in a few verses, we're going to see that Jesus offers Thomas the opportunity to touch him. So what's happening here? Well, the word touch means to fasten to, to adhere to, or to cling to. And in my mind, what happened is as soon as Mary heard Jesus say her name, as soon as she recognized that voice, she flung herself at him and wrapped him up into a giant bear hug. That's what the word touch really means here, to, to cling to, to, to adhere to. Mary stuck herself onto Jesus and wouldn't let him go. And that's why he says, you got to let me go because I got to go back to the Father. And so then Mary Magdalene went and came and told the disciples she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. That's the next important thing. The next important thing is that Mary was the first witness. Now, she was the first witness of the resurrection. 
that is unusual because at this particular time in history, women were not allowed to testify in court. The witness of a woman was not recognized as legally binding. And Mary further had the reputation she had been possessed by over seven demons. And yet this woman who had been demon-possessed, some people also say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. I'm not sure I buy that. Um, that was something that was developed later in church history, uh, ancient church history. Uh, that idea came later in time, and it's really conflating her with uh, the prostitute that washed Jesus' feet with her tears. Uh, but we're not, I, I'm not willing to say that Mary was that person. But the Bible does say that she had been possessed by seven demons. So she would not have been a reputable witness in any environment whatsoever. And the fact that she is the first witness of the resurrection is remarkable. Verse 19. Then the same day at, at, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Jesus appears to the disciples. Completely unexpected, but there he is. Let me go back. I want to touch on Mary one more time as the witness. And I, I think I missed this verse. If you look back at verse 17 or verse 18, he said, he tells Mary to go to my brethren and say unto them, that I have ascended to my father. So not only is the Mary the first witness of the resurrection, she is the first witness commissioned to go share the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead. She's the first one commissioned by the Savior to share that good news. Very remarkable, very uh, informative on how Jesus viewed and loved women and uh, included them in his ministry. So now Jesus appears to the disciples, but guess who's not there? Thomas isn't there. And Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe until I can place my finger in his wounds and in his side. And so if we skip down a few verses, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And after eight days, again, his disciple, or verse 26 now, and after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now, a lot of skeptics like to point out that the Gospels, or, or argue rather, that the Gospels never declare Jesus is God. And that's patently and demonstrably false in the Gospel of John. The other Gospels, it's, it is a little more hidden, it is a little more vague, but it's there if you know where to look. But in the Gospel of John, John makes it clear that not only is Jesus human, he is also divine. And he is our Lord and our God. And Thomas was the first person doubting Thomas. Guy gets a lot of, a lot of uh, teasing and 
because he was doubting Thomas, but he was the first disciple to declare Jesus as Lord and God. Now, this account does a great job of refuting some of the major arguments against the resurrection. You know, you have the swoon theory, which argues that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just kind of passed out. But this gospel really kind of knocks that aside. All the gospels really do. But if Jesus just passed out and woke up in the tomb three days later, first of all, how did he have the strength to move the rock, to move the stone? How did he have the strength to break the steel? How did he was able to get past the guards? And how would somebody who had been just emaciated with, with all the violence that had been uh, brought upon his body, how could he have convinced his disciples that he was a resurrected being? This swoon theory makes no sense whatsoever. The other important, not important, but the other prominent theory is that the, God, that the disciples just made all this up or that they stole the body. Well, this gospel refutes that notion that the disciples stole the body and that they made it up. The gospel paints the disciples as clueless people that just did not have a clue. If you're going to make up a story about a God you're going to kind of, and, and you're founding this church, you're going to kind of paint yourself as a hero. But the gospel of John, really all the gospels, paint the disciples as people that are messing up. They're not getting it. They're not that smart. And uh, that really refutes the idea that the disciples just made all this up. Because if they would have just made it up, they would not have uh, let their image be so incompetent in some of these gospels. They would have made themselves look better, I'm sure. So why is this important? Why is the resurrection so important? Well, Paul gives us some answers to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The historical fact of, of the resurrection is essential to the truthfulness of Christianity. So if you have 1 Corinthians 15 open, turn. let's look at verses 13 through 19. Paul writes this, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is in vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God, that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, here's the, here's the important part. If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. They that have also fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If Jesus isn't written from the dead, risen from the dead, Christianity is a lie. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. We still remain in our sins. There is no victory over the grave. And we are, of all men, most miserable, Paul says. Earlier in the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives us additional evidence of the historicity of the resurrection when he tells us in verse 6 that over 500 people saw Jesus alive after the crucifixion. Noted Christian author C.S. Lewis argues that the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ is not merely another religious myth, but rather it was a historical event with historical consequences. Lewis writes, quote, the old myth of the dying God 
without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a balder or an Osiris dying nobody knows when or where to a historical person crucified, it is all in order, under Pontius Pilate, end quote. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it's all true. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, none of it is true. The Come Follow Me Sunday School Manual gives three important principles that the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us. One, because the Savior conquered death, we too shall live again. We can find peace and joy through the Savior's atonement. And through his atonement, Jesus Christ has power to help us overcome sin, death, trials, and weaknesses. The Come Follow Me Sunday School Manual gives us three important principles that the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us. One, because the Savior conquered death, we too shall live again. Two, we can find peace and joy through the Savior's atonement. And three, through his atonement, Jesus Christ has power to help us overcome sin, death, trials, and weaknesses. Let's look at those principles. First of all, because the Savior conquered death, we too shall live again. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 22. Paul writes, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits were the promise that more fruit was to come. Jesus' resurrection ensures our resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26, For he, Jesus, must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. When Jesus rose from the dead, he gave death the knockout punch. And death is in its own death throes right now. And when Jesus returns, death will be utterly, totally, completely finished, destroyed, defeated. Death will be dead. Look at what Paul writes in verse 51 through 57. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is the victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One time I heard a story about a father and his children that were driving home and they had the windows rolled open and the bee got into the car. And the little girl, the little daughter was, was frightened because she was afraid the bee was going to sting her. And so the father reached up and swatted the bee and in the process, the bee stung the father. 
but the bee continued to swarm around the vehicle and scare the children. And the father said, you don't need to be afraid. I have been stung. I've taken the sting. The bee has lost its stinger. It can buzz around you. It can scare you, but it cannot sting you anymore. Death is the same way. It can buzz around us. It can scare us. But because of the resurrection, it cannot sting you anymore. There's another story about uh, an animal. And I wish I could. I tried to look it up, but I couldn't I couldn't find it. Um, but there was a story about an animal that uses other animals, abandoned dens and abandoned burrows but it will not go into that den or burrow unless it sees two tracks, a track going into the burrow and a track coming out of the burrow. And the illustration is this, before Jesus came, there was only one track leading into the tomb, but now there is a track coming out of the tomb. So it is safe to enter. It is safe to enter because Jesus has gone through and come out again. And because he has done so, we can place our faith in him that the same will happen to us. First Corinthians chapter 15 is a phenomenal chapter. I encourage you to go back and read it again, slowly and thoroughly. There is so much deep doctrine in this chapter pertaining to the resurrection, baptism for the dead, and the degrees of glory. It is all there. But we're going to turn back to Come Follow Me and the manual. So the next two items, it says, is we can find peace and joy through the Savior's atonement. And then number three, through his atonement, Jesus Christ has power to help us overcome sin, death, trials, and weakness. The resurrection is the atonement, or the resurrection is the evidence that the atonement is real. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 15, 17, it says, if Christ be not raised, your faith in us is in vain, and you are yet in your sins. Well, the opposite can be said as well. If Christ is, read, is raised, then you are not still in your sins. You are not captive to your sins. We still sin, but we can repent. We're not captive to our sins. And that our faith is valid, and we have hope. How can we be sure that we are no longer going to be captive to our sins? How does the resurrection ensure that? Because the resurrection is evidence that the atonement is real. How do we know the atonement accomplished that? How can one man dying on the cross accomplish uh, the power and potential of forgiveness of sin and salvation for every human on the, on the, in the world? Well, he wasn't just a man. He was fully divine. But also, let's look back in the Gospel of John. Let's take a detour. The John chapter 19, verse 30. This is my favorite verse in the New Testament, John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The sentence, it is finished, is translated from one word in the Greek, and that word is tetelestai. And tetelestai is my favorite word in the Greek New Testament. Here's why. I'm going to get into the technicalities of the language here, but this is so cool. Stay with me. Tetelestai is from the root word uh, teleo, meaning to bring to a close, to finish, to end, to perform, to execute, to complete, to fulfill, to carry out, 
the contents of a command, to perform the last act which completes a process to accomplish and fulfill. It is a Greek verb, and if we were to parse that verb, it would break down as present tense, active voice, indicative mood, third person singular. So let's start and break that parsing down. We're going to start with a person and number, third person singular. The person and number of Tetelestai is translated it. What does it refer to? I would argue that it refers to the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the mortal ministry of the Messiah. It refers to the work the Father had sent Jesus to perform and that he agreed to perform in the preexistence. It refers to Jesus' mortal ministry in general and to the atonement in particular. That is what it means. Let's look now at mood. The Greek language has several different moods to describe the proximity of the language of the verb, of the action of the verb to reality. The most frequently used moods in the Greek language are subjunctive, imperative, and indicative. Subjunctive, the subjunctive mood is the action furthest removed from reality. In other words, the action might happen. For example, Johnny might clean his room today. He might, but he might not. It's removed from reality. The imperative mood is the mood of command. The action should happen. Example, Johnny, you'd better clean your room today. The indicative mood is the mood of reality. The action is happening or has happened. For example, Johnny is cleaning his room right now, or Johnny has cleaned his room. The action is certain, the action is definite. So the action of this verb, tetelestai, is certain, it is definite. The use of the indicative mood in the word above indicates that the reality of this event is finished. It is definitely finished, Jesus is saying here. Now the voice, the voice describes uh, where the action, what the action is acting upon. In the active voice, the subject is doing the action. In the passive voice, the subject is being acted upon. For example, in the active voice, you would say, Johnny finished the race. Johnny is doing the action. In the passive voice, after running the race, Johnny said he is finished. In that case, the subject is receiving the action. And in this case, uh, in Tetelestai, the subject is receiving the action. So now let's look at the coolest part here, the perfect tense. Now we know this is in the perfect tense because of the duplicated stem, T-E-T-E, -T -E, or ta epsilon, ta epsilon. The perfect tense is just that it's perfect. If you remember what that the meaning of the word perfect is complete, then you can remember that the perfect tense has to do with completed action. We could technically translate this word. It is completely, utterly, totally finished. There is nothing more that could be added to this. There is nothing that can be taken away. It is perfect. But there is one more dimension to the perfect tense. The perfect tense indicates ongoing result. The perfect tense is a primary tense because it emphasizes the present or ongoing result of a completed action. Though it occurred at a particular point in time, it extends to infinity in all directions of time. Putting all this together, 
it, the atonement, mortal ministry of Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Putting this all together, it, the atonement, the mortal ministry of Christ, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy has been brought to a close, executed, fulfilled, completed in the most complete, perfect way possible. The action is certain. There can be no doubt. This event ripples through time in all directions throughout all history, like the idea of dropping a pebble into a pond and the ripples from that pebble spreading out in all directions infinitely. That's what this word means. The atonement touches every sin ever committed in mortality from Adam to the end times. Any sin that you have committed, any sin that I have committed is touched by this atonement, by the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is can be obliterated by an act that took place 2,000 years ago because the power of that act is still as strong today as it was the moment it was finished. That is what the word tetelestai means, and that is why it is my favorite word in the New Testament. Again, the power of that act is still as strong today as it was the moment it was finished. Your sins, my sins, can be obliterated by an act that took place 2,000 years ago if we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of our sins. Because the Savior conquered death, we too shall live again. We can find peace and joy through the Savior's atonement. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, it has power to help us overcome sin, death, trials, and weaknesses. And we know that is true because we know the resurrection is true. I bear you my testimony that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he suffered for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day and that the resurrection is true. If you do not know this truth for yourself, you can. Just pray and ask Heavenly Father to send the Holy Spirit to confirm it. If you don't know the truth that your sins can be forgiven by an act that took place 2,000 years ago because it's still acting today, you can do that. You just have to ask for it. Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thousands of people are baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints every week. In many ways, Brian Reddy's story is no different than any other convert except that Brian was an ordained Southern Baptist pastor with a formal theological education. He firmly believed that Joseph Smith was a false prophet. In 1979, Brian and his mother were driving home from a fireside featuring members of the Osmond family. He had listened to their testimonies of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and was impressed. He turned to his mother and said, Mom, I want to be a Mormon. Her answer was a firm and adamant no. Over the next 35 years, Brian became a committed follower of Jesus Christ and a staunch anti-Mormon. But then things changed. His heart began to soften as he opened his mind to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. His faith would face the ultimate test of conviction to quit his ministry and seek baptism.